Today's story is called Iris Crescent. Suburban London often seems sleepy and quiet, especially these days. But scratch beneath the surface, and all manner of peculiar things might be found. Some of them terrible, some of them terrifying, some of them even worse. Iris Crescent In the north London suburb of Alexandra Palace, which itself lies between affluent Muswell Hill and the grittier Wood Green, there was a road called Iris Crescent. Iris Crescent nestled between Clyde Road and Outram Road and was made up of 26 semi-detached dwellings built in the Edwardian era. Architecturally speaking, it was unremarkable, although the houses were of a good size and none of them had been converted into flats. They were well built, and several of the houses retained their original stained-glass doors and tiled hallways. There were, however, many loft conversions and kitchen extensions to disrupt the symmetry. The owners and the tenants, for there was a mixture of both, came from diverse backgrounds and were employed in an impressive range of occupations. Throughout the 1990s and 2000s, house prices had continued to increase, so that while the longer-standing inhabitants of the road had quite modest fortunes, the more recent arrivals were, to put it crudely, filthy rich. Nevertheless, there appeared to be a harmonious interaction among neighbours. There was a fairly representative ethnic mix for North London, and while some children attended one of the local comprehensive schools and others were sent to private institutions of one kind or another, this did not stop them from fraternising. So far, so good. Unfortunately, Iris Crescent is no longer with us. That is, it can no longer be found on a map. You will not see it on older maps either because of a curious historical amnesia which set in following the events that occurred on the road. This is, allegedly, an iron law of London, that when incidents such as the ones to be outlined soon take place in every dwelling on a particular street, that street itself is erased from perceptible reality. There is no Iris Crescent in Alexandra Palace if you consult the A to Z guide in any edition, and neither can it be found on Google Maps or Google Earth. And clearly, this is the most important point. You will search for it in vain if you go walking along Clyde Road or Outram Road. It is as if the space occupied by Iris Crescent had simply reallocated itself to the other two roads, extending or contracting their gardens accordingly. Perhaps, most peculiar of all, is the absence of any awareness among the residents living on these once adjacent streets that Iris Crescent ever existed. All recollection of walking or driving on the road is now gone. All fond and fractious relationships with the people of Iris Crescent have been removed from the hearts and minds of any who once knew them. Why? Number one. Chris Hartley and Catherine Lee lived at number one Iris Crescent. Catherine owned the house and had been living there since 1999 when she and her former husband Roger bought the property. Catherine split up from Roger in 2008. They had no children. Chris moved in just after Christmas 2014. They seemed happy. When their pet cat Olaf went missing in March 2015, Catherine blamed Chris. A furious row developed and Catherine pushed Chris down the stairs. He broke his neck and died on the spot. It would have been unlikely that a charge of murder would have stood had not Catherine subsequently cut off Chris's head with a saw. 
She made no attempt to hide her crime when Chris's family asked the police to make inquiries. The rotting head remained where the decapitation had taken place, at the foot of the stairs. Olaf the cat returned, just as his mistress was taken into custody. Number two. Sally McNamara and her husband Jason lived at number two with their three daughters, Eve, Maria and Tony. Tony was the youngest and developed schizophrenia when she was in her early twenties. A state of high expressed emotion developed in the household. After one particularly heated exchange, Jason and Sally vented their feelings about how Tony had become a burden on their lives and would never amount to anything other than a pathetic dependent a psychiatric patient. When Maria had taken their side and Eve had tried to be peacemaker, Tony, inflamed by rejection, stabbed all of them in the chest in a blind psychotic rage. Sally died immediately and Eve died later in hospital. Jason and Maria survived but were scarred for life. Tony was sent to Broadmoor. Number three. Desmond Olatunji's wife Gloria died of pneumonia in 2012 when their children Fella and Femi were six and five respectively. Unable to cope with his grief, Desmond retreated into a world of ritual and fear. He kept the children away from school and made them take cold baths of water to drive out the evil spirits. After several months, he started to believe that they weren't really his children at all, and that they were possessed by the same forces that had killed his wife. As a result, he smothered the youngest boy, Femi, in his bed, before battering the oldest fella, who was trying to protect his younger brother. Desmond used a baseball bat and left very little of fella's skull intact. School authorities called the police three weeks later. Desmond had buried the bodies in the garden, but had made little effort to cover his tracks, he had killed himself in prison. Number four. Why could you not hear us? We cried to you from the bottom of our souls. We howled, we screamed, yet no one came, and nothing saved us. Number five. You were there. You saw everything. You knew. You stand accused. Number six. Charles Reed and his wife Shirley had two daughters, Maudie and Cass. In 1993, when the girls were six, Charles started taking photographs, which he posted on the fledgling internet. Soon he received offers of significant amounts of money to let strangers come to the house and have sex with the girls. Shirley acted as banker, and a pattern was soon established whereby the girls would be rented to individuals or groups of men who called round. During one particularly long session, Cass was accidentally strangled to death. Her body was quickly disposed of, and she was reported missing to the police. No one was ever charged with her abduction or murder. The body was never found. Maudie died of a heroin overdose in 2007. Number 7. I knew you'd been messing round. You were drinking more and staying out late. When you came home and crawled into bed, you stank of cigarettes, booze, and cheap perfume. Cheap is the operative word. I never really loved you, and then you became a total bastard. I don't regret what I did. You had it coming. Yes, it was worth it. It was worth going to prison just to see the expression on your face before you died, just to see you realise that I really meant it. Number eight. In 2012, when Sapna Patel was 80 years old, her son Dev 
who was a builder by trade, locked her in the cellar of number eight. Gradually her muffled cries faded to silence. She had been suffering from dementia for a year or two, and this had recently become so advanced that she didn't recognise any family members and was hostile to anyone who called at the house. Dev and his sisters decided that it was time they received their inheritance. They took Sapna's corpse and dragged it to the kitchen, where they inserted her into a dividing wall that Dev had erected to shut off the kitchen from the dining room. He plastered over her bird-like body and painted the new kitchen a soft shade of peach. The house sold for one million pounds and the profit was divided equally among the siblings. The new occupants didn't like the dividing wall and in 2014 they had it demolished. The discovery of Sapna's body eventually led to a life sentence for Dev. His sisters were able successfully to claim that they knew nothing about the murder. They produced documents to prove that Dev claimed he had taken her overseas to live with her niece. Number 9. I can hear the whimpering at night as I lie awake. Listen. At first I thought it was a bird trapped in the eaves. What is it? Should I try to free it? Number 10. I don't even exist. Number 11. Blood. Blood dripping from the ceiling onto the floor below. Drip, drip, incriminating drip. Blood oozing between floorboards and coagulating in corners. Blood trickling down window panes and spilling onto carpets. Blood and more blood and the blood keeps coming. The trickles meet to form a rivulet. Blood collecting in channels, running now with a constant flow, a pulse that replenishes, a surge that brims over everything. Life blood, heart blood, innocent blood, the blood of the damned, the blood of the free. So much blood, and the blood will not stop. A house of blood. Number 12. Rachel Sumner sits in front of the mirror. Her face and her neck and her arms and her legs are scarred from the knife and the razor. She smiles at herself. Today is the day. She grins from ear to ear, and it is from ear to ear now that she will slit her throat. She has her favourite implements to hand, the straight razor that she bought in Italy in 1979 to be used only on special occasions. The long-handled steak knife with which she can gauge the deepest incisions to perfection. Here is the border between life and death. She has always stopped, just short. Until now. She is used to the pain, a welcome friend with its warmth and comfort. In with the knife to ease the razor's path, across with the razor to a depth beyond the border. A cascade of blue and red, a final farewell, and the peace, the sweet peace of slipping, of fading, of an absolute ending. Number 13. There are no unlucky numbers on this road. Number 14. Jack Bramble shot his baby sister Angela with a crossbow in the garden in the late spring of 2001. The bolt went through her forehead and Jack watched as she stumbled around like a mini Frankenstein before she toppled into the fish pond. Jack was eating toast and marmalade in the kitchen when his mother Marie came back from the shops. Had Jack been playing with Angela? Yes, he had. Oh, yes, indeed. Number 15. 
If you're going to raise the stakes, you've got to be prepared to follow through. He'd done us over, sold his total stash to the silk, a gang from North Tottenham who had recently moved operations into the more affluent parts of the borough. We knew there was a storm brewing. Hey, we knew we all might end up as fried meat, but when you've been crossed, when you've been sold out, if you don't take action, then that's as good as inviting a bullet in the heart. So we called round one evening to Iris Crescent, bundled him into the car and drove out to the Lee Valley. Splosh is all I'll say. Splish, splosh. Number 16. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Number 17. I burned old Tom in number 16. I sat back and watched his face melt, all Halloween orange and chimney red. Number 18. Look, it was an accident, OK, a total accident. I shouldn't have been so careless, I admit, but what with all the stress of entertaining, her allergies completely escaped my mind. We've all heard about bad reactions to peanuts, but you never for one minute imagined that it will be your peanuts that actually kill. The post-mortem said she died of anaphylactic shock brought on by her reaction to my satay. I never said it was nut-free. I mean, how do you make nut-free satay? But someone assured her. Someone led her to believe it was perfectly safe. I mean, really, don't you feel that gluten-intolerant raw vegans with extreme nut allergies just shouldn't, you know, leave the house? Number 19. Igor Volshinov was found guilty of the manslaughter of Olev Stoichkov in June 2002. Following an argument in which Olev made a crude remark about Igor's mother, Igor kicked away the ladder which Olev was standing on as they both painted the outside of Mrs. Phelan's house. Igor pleaded guilty. He had been friends with Olev since they were children. Mrs. Phelan relished her brief moment as the hostess of destruction. She threw a dinner party and dressed as the angel of death. Number 20. The smell coming from the drains was indescribable. Even the rats avoided number 20. Number 21. Hamish was six months old when I killed him. I shook him because he wouldn't stop crying. I would pick him up and hold him and cuddle him and nurse him. I would walk up and down reciting the owl and the pussycat which I had learned by heart. But he wouldn't stop. This gut-wrenching screech, getting louder and louder, unrelenting. I thought he was in pain. I took him to the doctor, but she said it was perfectly normal, perfectly normal. The noise expanding in my head, echoing in my skull. I picked him up and I shook him. I kept shaking, and then he stopped crying. I knew, I knew immediately. I would give anything. I would endure a lifetime of his screaming now, now that everything in the world has lost its meaning. Number 22. Nothing happened here. Okay? Nothing at all. Number 23. I know what's going on. I've watched them over the years. All of them. I've seen what they do, how they live. Animals. All of them animals. How did they get here? 
Why did we let them in? Their language, their food, their clothes, their music, their children, their habits. It's disgusting, totally disgusting. There will be a reckoning, a cleansing. We have no choice. Number 24. D.C.I. Canterbury lived at number 24 with his wife Emily and their two sons, James and Simon. He was well known in the force for cracking the Walthamstow strangler case. He was a good detective. But, you know, like so many policemen, it all took its toll on his family life. He was a good policeman, but he gave Emily the odd slap and he punched Simon in the ribs once when he was being a real idiot. Broke three. Had to take him to A&E. Made him say he fell down the stairs. Emily and James have fallen down the stairs too. So careless. Number 25. No comment. Number 26. They felt that something momentous was happening, that the walls were closing in, but more than the walls, the street itself was constricting, was bending in on itself. The air felt dense with a cloying, laden sorrow. There was a low hum that began to rise and fall in pitch, a haunting, painful sound. You could hear whispers and screams, faintly and then with piercing volume. Everything was heavy, heavy with unbearable weight. The world began to fold and fold again. There was a crushing intensity, an obliterating force, as if it were being compacted, trampled by some extraordinary power. And then, with a final, shuddering crunch, it was over. It was all over. Over for everyone and everything. Iris Crescent disappeared sometime in January 2019. It leaves no obvious trace. And yet if you walk along Outram Road or Clyde Road and you listen very carefully, your senses on alert, your heart open to the unexpected, then perhaps you can feel the fault line of anguish, the vestigial torment that hangs in the air. Then again, perhaps not. Iris Crescent never existed. How could it? Thank you for listening. <laughs>